the Beatles had this charm, John, Paul and George, and probably then Stuart and Pete had this charm when things weren't going well, which in their world wasn't very often because mostly it was an upward trajectory, but nonetheless, sometimes you know, they would have a bad night or the gig would, you know, didn't work properly or the amps broke or whatever. I say, where are we going, fellas? And they'd go, to the top, Johnny. And I'd say, where's that, fellas? And they say, to the toppermost of the poppermost. And I'd say, right. And we'd all sort of cheer up. Where are we going, Johnny? Straight to the top, boys. Oh, yeah, where's that? The toppermost of the poppermost. <laughs> Welcome to Toppermost of the Poppermost. We are now up to May of 1963. I'm Ed Chen. I'm Kit O'Toole. And I'm Martin Quibell. So in this month on the British chart, we see yet again more rise of Brian Epstein and George Martin. One of the things we haven't spoken of yet, George Martin would have 37 of the 52 weeks at the top of the charts in 1963. Wow. I mean, yeah, he's wow. really, you know, becoming, uh, to say a rising figure is, is putting it mildly. You know, you're really starting to see his influence in pop music. And the other thing we get is we get John and Paul as songwriters, giving songs to others, starting to show their skills as hit makers. Billy J put out his first single, and that was Lennon-McCartney songs on both sides of the record. That's right. Lennon-McCartney penned singles. But we're going to see some debuts of other artists that are going to end up being very well-known and classic artists that we all know and love to this day. And at least one of those is another band from the Liverpool area. And in fact, they would be one of the groups which would take over the lunchtime slot after... The Beatles got too big for that at the Cavern. And you'll just have to wait and find out who it is. <laughs> so let's talk about Billy J. Billy J. John Lennon was the one who actually gave him the J for his pseudonym. I didn't know that. A bit like Michael J. Fox. <laughs> A bit. <laughs> the J doesn't stand for anything. He's not actually Billy Kramer either. He was born as William Howard Ashton. Billy Ashton. Hey. That might have worked. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's really interesting when you look back on it. I mean, you know, he had a number of hits that the Beatles never officially recorded. Let's put it that way. Bad to Me, which is great. And the next year, Little Children, which was not Lennon McCartney. Yeah. And he actually turned down a Lennon McCartney song in favor of recording that one. But they still got a hit with that. Yes, indeed. And... I'll keep you satisfied from a window. I call your name. Just really had quite a career for a while. And yes, he had been offered I'm in Love, another uh, Lennon McCartney song, and it was shelved in the end and given to the foremost. And we still see him at Fest every year. Not at the last New York Fest. He wasn't there this time, but he's been there many, many times. 
and puts on a good show. He still gets the crowd going. He's still up there having fun, I think. And, you know, whoever is still around to entertain us from that era, anyone who knew the Beatles, it's good to get them up there on stage telling these stories. Absolutely, because unfortunately, you know, there aren't as many uh, around anymore. So it's great that he's still with us and still coming to fests and entertaining us. And, you know, it is still a thrill. You you have to admit when you hear him sing these tracks. But also telling the stories as well of the, the stories behind the tracks and behind his relationship and friendship with the Beatles. Um, I did an audition at uh, a place called Aintree Institute and the Beatles were playing that night. And I think that from that, you know, I met the Beatles for the first time. I'd heard about the Beatles and I'd seen them. You know, and how big were they in the UK at that time? Uh, they were sort of like they hadn't made records. They were just like a local band, local band. playing all the same gigs. I, I'd seen them at Little in Town Hall. Um, the DJ there one night said, "We've got a band called the Beatles playing next week," and I thought that's cool. <laughs> you know, and everybody used to go like after chicks on a Thursday night there. And I remember sort of like everybody was playing like Cliff Richard songs and things like that. And it was just choked on a board outside the Beatles. And the Kenton's open and Paul McCartney was singing Long Tall Sally like nobody I'd ever heard before. And usually people would be a, a bit indifferent, I thought, and they'd stand around the perimeter of the dance hall. But this night they all like ran to the front and, and I went, wow, you know. And uh, I was walking home and I said to my friends, they're going to be bigger than Elvis. And they said, you've been drinking too much. These were people who were around in Liverpool and saw them coming up. Yeah. As I said, there aren't as many around anymore. And so it's really fascinating to hear these stories. And at a time when the Beatles were just on the rise in Britain. And so it's just fantastic to hear these stories before they broke through in America I'm really hearing about George Martin's growing stable of artists and Brian Epstein's, I should say that. And Billy J. Kramer was a part of it. So it's you know wonderful to, to hear him tell these stories. How did Brian get him? He was one of the ones that Brian was looking for when he was just going out and trying to scoop up the Liverpool acts. Is that right? I, I don't know that story. I, you know, that's a good question. I'm not sure I precisely, but I think that's it. Good-looking guy and had a good voice and his group, the Dakotas, backing him. And it was just part of picking up the Liverpool talent, the Merseyside talent. So Brian sees you, he hears what you're doing, he gets familiar with it, and he approaches you and says what? Uh, he just said to me, like, um, what would you like, where would you like, like to be with your career and what would you like to do? And I said... I'd like to become a, a very good entertainer and a good singer, and I'd like to be that I could uh, do well even if I didn't have... If, if I hit, hit records, I wouldn't want to just rely on them. Mm. I'd want to develop and become a good performer. And he said, that, you know, that's fine. And he said, the first thing I want to do is put away the Christmas tree because I used to wear all the flashy stuff colorful stuff yeah. <laughs> put away the christmas tree <laughs> put away the christmas tree and he he took me to uh, the tailor dougie millings who's well renowned you know and, and hooked you up with some good yeah some good clothes in, put me in the you know and then then he used to complain because i i had short hair all the time not you know um this is just lately um <laughs> he came about but uh 
I thought everybody's got long hair, so I didn't want to do that. Yeah, I was going to say, was he already friends with the Beatles, though, before this? So, I mean, that might have introduced him to Brian through the fact that he was friends with the Beatles already. They certainly knew each other. I don't know how friendly they were. I don't think that Billy was in the crowd that sort of went to Hamburg and, you know, he was around on the Liverpool scene as a performer, but he didn't go through the same sort of indoctrination that the Beatles and Jerry and some of the more successful, not that Billy wasn't successful, but he was a perhaps slightly less charismatic personality. I don't mean to put him down or anything, but yeah, he definitely was not exactly a super dynamic performer. Although, as I said, when you see him perform at the fest today, I mean, he really can transfix the crowd. I mean, the crowd loves him and knows how to perform. There goes Kid apologizing to those Billy J. Kramer fans out there. (laughs) Just wait, I've got an apology for fans later. Uh Uh-oh, uh-oh. Uh-oh. So, (laughs) I mean, the thing about Billy J. is he was not really able to adapt to the times. And once that era was over with, really once the initial wave of the British invasion kind of peaked and people at least somewhat went on to other things and the Beatles and others started to grow out of the Mersey beat phase, shall we call it. Billy kind of had some trouble keeping up with the rest of them. Yeah, I think that's a good point. He had a terrific voice for the songs he did that were more on the pop side. He sounded great, but as the sound changed and as we're doing this show, as we're tracking the charts, I mean, you just see how sounds change over time you know but maybe turning away from pop over time we're not there yet (laughs) still pretty poppy particularly on the american charts yes for sure yes we'll be getting to that but you know as as it started moving away from pop and a little more into a Eh, Maybe not harder rock. I mean, it's not hard, but... Hard Day's Night, for example, is moving away from what you would call the traditional poppy sound. The difference between, even like from me to you to Hard Day's Night, you can tell. You can see the growth in the Beatles, and you can see a comparable growth in a lot of these other bands. Right, exactly. And so Billy Jay's voice just didn't really fit that mold. But for that time, though, he had... Quite a run of singles. He had a lot of things going for him. You have Brian Epstein, you have George Martin, you have Lennon McCartney's songs. So it was going to work for a while at least. And it fit the time. Absolutely. All right, that's Billy Jay. I would kind of put him at one of the lesser artists of the NEM stable, of the Brian stable, but he was good for what he did. In a way, it shows one of the great talents of John and Paul as songwriters, not only in writing songs for themselves, but when they were writing songs for other people, say Scylla or anybody else, over the years, they were able to fashion those songs to perfectly fit those actual singers. And the songs that they were writing that they were giving to Billy... They were perfect for Billy, so they had this ability to know what was right for the person that they were offering the songs to. You look at Do You Want to Know a Secret, George in a slightly rockier mode, and Billy J just turns up the sweetness, turns up the pop in that vocal. Absolutely, and the arrangement too, when you hear Billy J's version, I mean, the arrangement's different, but the way George sings 
I'm in love with you. There's a little hoarseness there. He lets that little raspiness get in there. So yeah, there's a little bit of that you know, rockier kind of feel to it. And as you said, Billy J plays it more of a straight pop croony sort of way. So you're right, uh, Martin, that the Beatles really knew how to write songs that could be tailored to whatever the artist's strengths were. But they were also in the studio a lot of the time when the artists were recording it as well. So there's recordings of John and Paul in sessions with Billy talking to him and they're almost like uncredited producers or arrangers there in the session. Well, I mean, you could see them soaking up those skills where by the 70s or even by the late 60s, they were able to produce themselves. Yeah. All right, so we had one other thing we wanted to talk about before we started getting into the charts. There has been an amazing discovery. You know, if you listen to any of our other shows, we've talked a little bit about it. From April of 1963, so, you know, a little more than 60 years ago, there is a recording of the Beatles at the Stowe School. This is pre-Beatlemania. Yeah. Very exciting find. And the recording is pretty astounding because this is a performance that they did at a prestigious all-boys school in Buckingham. And this is one of the rare live performances you can hear where there's no screaming during the set. These were boys that sat very politely during the performance and just clapped in between. So this is some of the best that you're going to hear. And the set list, and I guess the recording doesn't include the entire show, right? It's, it's 90% of it. There's thought to be one or two songs at the very end which did not get recorded, but that's all. They did Star Standing there twice, and we've got all the way through the encore of Star Standing there. It's thought that they may have done one or two additional songs after that. Okay, so the vast majority, and yep. when you see the set list, it's fascinating because you get the hits, Love Me Do, Please Please Me, but then you get some of their songs that they were still doing, you know, that were from the Cavern, from their Hamburg days. It's just an incredible set list that obviously by the next year, when they would be hitting the States and all, I mean, a lot of those songs would be gone from the set list. Well, even by the end of the year, mm -hmm. by November, December, once they got past the Roy Orbison tour, then they just kind of had to condense their set and play only their own stuff. Yeah, because so much of this is covers that they're playing on this set. So to have this is just a remarkable find. Well, we don't have it yet. We, not we yet. It's, yeah, not quite. <laughs> We got some excerpts which were aired on the BBC, but the owner of the tape, who is one of the guys who was actually the stage manager at the Stowe School, has the entire tape in his possession. And other than the radio personality, Mark Lewison is apparently the third person to have heard the tape in its entirety. 
And he sounded very excited that it really captures this time of the Beatles. While, you know, in England, their popularity was on the rise before, of course, they came to America. So, I mean, it's this time just before they're really exploding. And to have this on tape is just incredible. And I guess there's talk of trying to get it cleaned up, maybe... Peter Jackson will help out, or at least his technology. I sure hope so. I would love to hear this. Who wouldn't, right? <laughs> the talk right now is that once it's been cleaned up, the owner wishes to make it available to the British public. But if it's made available to the British public, it'll be made available everywhere. You know, someone yeah. will find a way to <laughs> record the whole thing and get it out there. Oh, I'm sure. And I'm glad that they made a point of saying this isn't going to be bought by a private collector and stored away somewhere. Thank goodness. As that's happened before. How long did it take us to get that Love Me Do, which came out fairly recently? You, you know, that's been around in private hands for at least 15 years. Yep, exactly. So I'm really glad that sounds like that is not the plan for this. I bet George Martin wished he'd had it. <laughs> <laughs> Because he had a problem with the Hollywood Bowl, didn't he? I mean, what this really gives you a feel for is George Martin had wanted to record Please Please Me in the cavern. This tape is kind of what that might have sounded like. The second song they do, Too Much Monkey Business, the BBC version is tremendous. It's great. But this beats the pants off of that one. Wow. It's not a matter of the playing quality. It's just the addition of a live audience, the slight bit of energy, extra energy that goes into playing to a crowd, even if it's a crowd, 90% boys. Yep, exactly. Well, and I'd love to hear some of the others. Like, I just don't understand some other guy. I mean, as we've talked about, hey, you can't have too many versions of some other guy. Come on. <laughs> and, and Misery, I'd love to hear that played in front of a live audience. I mean, it, it goes on and on. I mean, what a set. And the backstory is just so fascinating. The guy who actually made this show happen, he was a 17-year-old. He was a student at the school. He had seen the Beatles at the cavern, and he just kind of wrote to Brian and said, can we get the Beatles to come to our school, please? <laughs> is that how he sounded? <laughs> I, well, isn't that how most 17-year-olds sound? <laughs> well, it's certainly more interesting than an assembly at school. Yeah, no kidding. Well, I mean, apparently they always had an end-of-term thing where they bought in some act, but on the BBC tape, it's like, well, we thought we were going to play. <laughs> then we got in this this band that nobody knew. But, I mean, the, the thing about that is, even if they didn't know it, Please Please Me, the album had been out a week and a half, and you still had the boys knowing the songs enough that they're up there calling out, making requests. Yeah, how about that? Isn't that great? That they were requesting, they were like, yeah, okay, sure. (laughs) That's just amazing. The original special is on the BBC, the half-hour special. You can find it on YouTube. It's still available streaming from the BBC. Look for it, and like I say, all we can do is sit and wait and hope that the original tape gets to us in its entirety or nearly its entirety sometime pretty soon. Yeah, definitely worth a listen, and you only get little teasers of the tape, but what you can hear, wow, I can't wait. I hope we don't have to wait much longer.
Let's see. We don't have an advertiser, so we're gonna we're gonna talk about a couple things. Uh, first off, Kit, you met up with some folks at the fest. We do still have t-shirts available. If anyone is interested in our toppermost of the poppermost t-shirts, let us know, and we'll find a way to get one to you. Absolutely, we have uh, uh, plenty of sizes and a variety of sizes. So let us know. Um, they're really, uh, they're, they're great looking. Um, yes, had a, had a great time at the fest, met a lot of people. Patty Boyd was definitely one of the big attractions at the fest. The lines to see her were so long that they actually were handing out tickets and you would have to give your number and they would text you when it was your turn and, wow. and you'd have to come back. I mean, it was crazy. It's like a theme but, park. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of. I mean, I've, I've never seen that before at a fest. I mean, it was nuts. Talking about Mark Lewison, Mark Lewison gave presentations there. He gave a version of the Evolver show. And um, and so, and I was on a number of panels, which went really well. We did a Talk More Talk panel, media panel. Ken Womack did a sneak preview of his upcoming Mal Evans book, which is coming out in November. Yeah, it was supposed to be Father's Day, but it's been pushed back, which is slightly disappointing to all of us, but oh well. It's supply chain issues. It's really nuts. But yep, it's coming out in November at last, so he... Gave a sneak preview of the book, and oh boy, it is going to be just a, a, a great, great read. And, you know, finally, we get to hear Mel Evans' story. That's going to be just a treat to read and finally hearing from his perspective of his experiences. So, yeah, it was a busy, busy fest. And, of course, the next one is coming up in August in Chicago. And both Kit and I expect to be there, so... Yes, indeed. And we'll be doing a show there. More details will be forthcoming. As we get a little bit closer, we also have heard from our good friend Sam Wiles of the Paul McCartney podcast. And while he didn't give us an exact quote, he did say, tell everyone that I'm enjoying listening to Toppermost. So thank you, Sam. Thank you, Sam. And Martin, uh, we got a review on Apple Podcasts. You want to go ahead and read that? Toppermost is terrific. Thank you very much. This is a fun and factual podcast concerning the music which charted during the early 1960s that influenced, spawned and included the legendary Beatles. Samples of the hit songs are played and the music trends of the moment are discussed along with influences they had on music, listeners and culture. The podcast is lively, being hosted by three distinct personalities Ed Chen, Kito Tool, and Martin Quibell, all of whom are seasoned podcast personalities with impeccable credentials regarding the subject. From Santana 5, I'll just stop my head from uh, exploding there. Yeah, no kidding. Thank you very much. Seasoned, I like that. And you gave us the five-star review. If you're out there, please do the same because that does help us in the algorithm so people can find our show. And thank you very much. We really enjoy doing this show. We enjoy learning. We learn as much doing this show as you do from us. I've thoroughly been enjoying going through month by month and learning about these trends, 
learning about these artists. I mean, some we know about, but we'll have some surprises in this episode. <laughs> we learn about new artists to us. Thank you so much. We're so glad that you're enjoying this adventure with us. And you say early 1960s, all too soon we'll be into the mid-60s and the late 60s. Time keeps on slipping. Oh, I see what you did there. Well okay. done. <laughs> <laughs> all right, on to the British charts. We start with the first week in May, May 2nd, 1963. As mentioned, George Martin produced groups have the top two spots. That number one, there's for me to you. Little known um, song. <laughs> <laughs> and then at number two is still, how do you do it? How do they do it? <laughs> <laughs> so we move on to number six. Can't get used to losing you by Andy Williams. Oh my. Uh, it's a good song. Uh, the version is, dare I say it, not. I'll find some crowded avenue. Though it will be empty without you. Can't get used to losing you no matter what I try to do. Gonna live my whole life through. Loving you. Take it away, Martin. <laughs> I like the song. There's a really good cover version of this by the English Beat. English be covered this. Yeah, it's a really good scar tune done mm. that way. But this version by Andy Williams, I was saying that his voice is very of one sort of thing. When you've got songs like Music to Watch Girls by or Most Wonderful Time of the Year, there's a lot of movement in his voice, almost drama to it. But this one, it's just like on that steady pace, less reverb on the instrumentation and a bit more reverb on his vocal to give it a bit more life. And the screaming girls in the back don't help. Yeah, lose them. Yeah. <laughs> you know, his vocals were double tracked and then overdubbed choruses. So you hear him singing harmony with himself. And it seems like it detracts from his voice. I mean, because he does have a wonderful voice. And it just somehow blunts the impact of his voice somehow. I mean, it kind of sucks the life out of it in this song. Those moments when his voice is double tracked, his voice is much better in a sense, mm -hmm. or it comes across better. So why mm -hmm. didn't they just double-track the whole thing all the way through? That's a good point. Maybe they should have done that. And say, yeah, it just doesn't work somehow. But the thing is, it's a good song. The mm -hmm. song was written by Doc Pomus, who a lot of people really aren't familiar with. I wasn't overly familiar with him until I was listening to Peter Asher oh, sometime last year when he was talking about Save the Last Dance for Me, and he brought to my attention this documentary, a.k.a. Doc Pomus, which unfortunately is not streaming. You can get it pay through Amazon, but it's a wonderful documentary. The songwriting of Doc Pomus is just really pretty amazing. Mm -hmm. I'll have to look into that documentary. Yeah, I've, you know, I did a little research on him, and yeah, I mean, he's written some incredible songs. I mean, wow. I'm going to watch. Yeah. And certainly the one that... 
Beatle people are going to be most familiar with is Save the Last Dance for Me. And once you know Doc Palmas' story, that makes that song just that much more heartbreaking. I'm just looking at some of the songs now. I mean, you know, A Teenager in Love, Sweets for My Sweet, Viva Las Vegas, uh, wow. Little Sister, uh, Suspicion, Turn Me Loose. I mean, A Mess of Blues. There's some really good songs in there. Wow. Wow. And there are stories of Bob Dylan called up Doc Pomus when he was having a little bit of writer's block. My goodness. Elvis Presley called up Doc Pomus just to thank him. Wow. And John Lennon, at a BMI dinner, requested that he be sat next to Doc Pomus just so he could talk to him. Yeah. Yeah. My goodness. With regards to that story, you know, uh, Doc Palmas tells us that story. Uh, what he says is that the biggest kick I ever had was when I met John Lennon at a BMI dinner. And he said that one of the first songs the Beatles ever did was a song I wrote called Lonely Avenue. I, I'm not actually familiar with Lonely Avenue. I'm not either. No, I don't know that song. Now my room has got two windows, but the sunshine never comes through. You know it's always dark and dreary since I broke off, baby, with you. I live on a lonely avenue. My little girl wouldn't say I do, but I feel so sad and blue. And it's all because of you. Originally, all they wanted to do was reach a point like Morty and myself, Morty being the co-writer of Save the Last Dance for Me, uh, or like Carol King and Jerry Goffin, where they can make enough money to survive writing songs. So it's a name that you don't hear that much, but he's very much in the league of the top-notch songwriters of the era. Mm -hmm. And Andy Williams did a number on his song, shall we say. It may not have been him. I think it was just the arrangement. It just didn't serve him well, (laughs) to say the least. So, all right, we move on. At number eight, Rhythm of the Rain by the Cascades. You may not know it by the title because I I don't think the title actually appears in the song. Versions of the title appear in the song, but for the most part, it's Listen to the Rhythm of the Falling Rain. It's a song that everybody knows. It's, It's one of those that's just in the ether that you will hear at some point growing up. He's in about 20 or 30 different film soundtracks as well. Yeah, it's a beautiful song. And Hal Blaine, incidentally, from uh, The Wrecking Crew, plays drums on it. And it's just beautiful harmonies. It's a classic. I just think it's one of those kind of a pop song that really sort of stands out. It's of its time, but it's really beautiful. I think well-produced, well-arranged. It's just a lovely song. And Beatle people should be on the lookout for Dan Fogelberg's cover of it from the 70s, where he manages to weave a little bit of rain into it.
forgotten about that until you mentioned it. And I went, looked it up and I totally forgot that. Yeah. He worked rain in toward the end. Very cool. And they were with GAC uh, right around the same time the Beatles were, which doesn't make a connection, but it's almost a connection. So, so they, they were working with our good buddy over at GAC. I wonder if Paul Anka had anything to do with them. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> All right. Moving on at number 31, please, please me still in the charts Yeah. at number 42, the big three cover of some of the guy, which we talked about last month. Indeed. And then at number 43, our feature artists of the month, Billy J. Kramer and the Dakotas with their cover of, do you want to know a secret? Mm-hmm. Yep. You, you got something to say about the, uh, the B side, Ed. Billy J. Does the studio version of I'll Be On My Way. Most of us are familiar with it from the BBC version, but yeah. Billy J does a good version of it here. Mm-hmm. Billy J, I like his version, but it's almost like it sounds like it could have done with another take. Hmm. Perhaps. This is one of those that the Beatles really probably never would have done it in the studio. The sun is fading away. That's the end of the day. As the tune light turns to moonlight, I'll be on my way. Just one kiss and I'll go. Don't hide the tears that don't show. As the tune light turns to moonlight, I'll be on my way. This has that stereotypical June light, moonlight rhyme. It's like, no. <laughs> but it's John Lennon who wrote that. <laughs> yeah. He used to put a lot of his songs down, didn't he, John? Oh, did he ever? For mm. sure. But still, it's like, they don't want to include anything stereotypical or anything hacky like that. Oh, we'll just give it to Billy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I wonder if there's any thought of flipping the two sides. It did well enough with Do You Want to Know a Secret? But, I mean, that was a song that everybody knew. And I'll Be On My Way was a new song. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just a thought. I think you're right, though, that you did a nice cover. Again, it fit his voice well. You know, it has the poppy sound to it. And while the rhymes may have been a little trite for a typical Lennon McCartney song, it fit the bill. I think it's still a charming song, yet it fit Billy Jay's voice, personality, and I think it worked. The dam is breaking. The thumb is not going to hold the dike in place anymore. That's right. Here's another little crack and more of that water starting to spout out, starting to take over the whole charts. That's right. At number 48, another artist that we're somewhat familiar with, Petula Clark. She had a two-sided hit, Casanova and Chariot. Chariot, which is actually I Will Follow Him, sung in French. Indeed, and Casanova in German. I didn't know that she was multilingual. She would do a, a French cover of Please Please Me. Yes, she would. Yeah. 
I didn't know that she did that. It kind of relates to a John Lennon story. She performed a bilingual show in Montreal in 1969 when downtown became such a big hit and she was asked to go to Montreal. She thought she could do a bilingual show so she could do downtown and then do French songs and as well as English songs. Well, I guess she would sing in French and the English speaking audience was unhappy. And then the French were unhappy when she'd sing in English. And I guess it was a pretty rough concert, mixed reception from the audience to say the least. Of course, this is Montreal, 1969. And this was during John and Yoko's bed in for peace. And so after the show, one night she went over to the hotel and she said she just walked in. There was no security and said she wanted to see John Lennon. So she just walked up to their room and there they were. And she talked to him and told him what happened. And I guess he was very sympathetic. And I love this. The advice he gave her when she told him what happened about this, you know, bad reception she got, which was basically F him. <laughs> <laughs> and then she is one of the voices that appears on Give Peace a Chance. She is. She just happened to be there and, you know, looking for comfort and all after this terrible concert. And then like, oh, they're just singing this song. Okay. <laughs> I'll join in. Tommy Smothers and Hari Krishna and Derek Taylor and, you know. Everybody else, although Petula is not mentioned by name by John. No, it's really weird. So there you go. Petula's John Lennon connection. So we move on to the next week, the 9th of May. Once again, for me to you, is it number one? And how do you do it? Is it number two? Hmm? Yeah. Billy J has moved up all the way to number 17 with Do You Want to Know a Secret? George Martin's reign continues. <laughs> Listen. At number 21, Lucky Lips from our old friend Cliff Richard. A bit late 50s as opposed to it being a 1963-sounding song. Just to my ears, it sounded more late 50s. And I've heard better doo-wop-inspired songs. Just me, maybe. Lucky lips are always kissing. Lucky lips are never blue. Lucky lips will always find a pair of lips so well, you know what? You're right about it sounding 50s because it was written by Weber and Stoller. Yep. And it was originally recorded by Ruth Brown in 1956. 
So you are absolutely correct that it was a 50 sound. And it was covered more times before uh, Cliff Richard by uh, Gail Storm and Alma Kogan, yep. um, you know, a couple of times. And then Cliff Richard. Not insane about it. Do you think I'd prefer the original? The original was a better recording, I think. For yeah, sure. and Ruth Brown is was an incredible singer. Way more of an R&B kind of sound, obviously. So I think, yeah, I think you'd like the original better. Good, good. I'll have to check that out. Yeah. Okay, at number 37 is If You Gotta Make a Fool of Somebody by Freddie and the Dreamers. Their version is a little bit more pop. The original was done by James Ray and was one of the records in John Lennon's Shootbox. This song is fascinating because, of course, James Ray, also the uh, original of Got My Mind Set on You. And when you hear the original version of this, it's definitely more R&B based than Freddie and the Dreamers take. You know, in 1962, the Beatles began performing the James Ray version. And they basically did it because George had a copy of this record. You've got to make a fool of somebody. And they just thought they would do a version of it because they said it was so wacky. Like it was just this wacky R&B kind of waltz. And so they just thought that was new. And so they would perform it and that the other bands used to gather around when they'd hear them doing this in Hamburg. And so Paul McCartney said, lots of bands all hanging, having a beer when we were on. And I consciously remember them all hanging around for that one. And as you said, it was in John Lennon's jukebox. So one of those bands that heard them performing this song was Freddie and the Dreamers. If you gotta make a fool of somebody, somebody. If you gotta make a fool of someone, dear, you really can hurt me. I'm the one that worries, worries about you. September the 12th, 1962, in the Cavern. The Beatles were the headliners, and one of the bands further down the bill, Freddie and the Dreamers. Yep, so they soon began incorporating it into their own act, and thus they recorded it. 
And the Beatles would keep doing this song well into 1963. We have a set list from April the 17th at the Majestic Ballroom where they actually went and squeezed it in. It wasn't on their original <laughs> set list. And you can see Paul pulling an arrow out and saying, we got to do make a fool of somebody. That's one of the songs that I wished it had been in the So School set. It's a shame that it's not. Mm. Me too. I was just thinking that. Boy, do I wish it had been in the set. Wouldn't you have loved to have heard them do this? Did Freddie and the Dreamers do it because they'd heard the Beatles doing it? That's certainly a partial reason. It's not a cover that was that popular amongst uh, the bands at the time. But as Elvis Costello recently said, you know, those Liverpool bands, they all had the same record collections. Yeah, (laughs) it's true. Probably stolen from one another. (laughs) (laughs) At number 41 is Please Please Me. At number 48, She's New to You by Susan Mon, who we have spoken of before. She's new to you. Whatever makes you think that she'll be true to you. Not a huge Beatles connection, but she was on the uh, Boxing Day 1964 From Us To You show. And also kind of representative of the pop sound that's still hanging around the chart. That even though, as you said earlier, Ed, the change is coming, the change is in the air with Billy J. Kramer and the Beatles and Jerry and the Pacemakers and so forth, you know, we still have this sound that's lingering. Like Andy Williams on the American charts particularly see this. But you're still seeing these kind of records, like She's New to You, with these kind of almost cabaret singers. But it won't be for much longer. (laughs) (laughs) All right, we move on to the next week, the 16th of May, 1963. For Me to You is still there at number one. How Do You Do It has moved all the way down to number four, but continuing to climb the charts. At number 10 was Billy J. Kramer's Do You Want to Know a Secret? It's going up, 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 up. At number 28 was Billy Fury with When Will You Say I Love You. The review from Disc at the time says that it opens as if it's going to be a fast piano concerto, but soon slides into familiar lazy beat for another hit ballad. With Fury playing the lyrics romantically with those undertones of Presley, which seem to be doing him a lot of good commercially nowadays. You speak my name and winter changes. I almost think it's more faux Roy Orbison thing. Yeah, it is so dramatic at the beginning. I mean, it is wow with the piano concerto. Holy cow! I mean, it just hits you at the beginning. It's just like, it's like, wow, it is so dramatic. And then, yeah, it does kind of then go into kind of a typical Billy Fury sort of sound. But like I said, I think it's a little bit more almost like he's trying to do the operatic Roy Orbison thing than the Elvis bluesy voice thing. Yeah. yeah. This is the one I was hinting at earlier. You ready for this? Well, hit us, Martin. My notes. 
a song that wants to be good but fails with a club singer style vocal performance. <laughs> okay, so you're apologizing to the Billy Fury fans this week. So I'm sorry for offending Billy Fury fans. <laughs> no, I'm with you on this. I put in my notes overproduced, overarranged. Faux <laughs> uh, Phil Spector. Mm hmm. Sorry, Billy Fury fans out there, but this just didn't do it for me. To to quote George, see you in the clubs. (laughs) (laughs) All right. At number 42 is Please Please Me. At number 43, Take These Chains From My Heart by Ray Charles, which we spoke of last month. And Mm -hmm. at number 45, Harvest of Love by Benny Hill. Oh, do I have things to say about this? Here we go. <laughs> well, I don't think there's that much of a Beatles connection, but we have to mention it. Before he started writing Beatles books, Mark Lewison wrote Funny Peculiar, The True Story of Benny Hill. Yes, indeed. And as I've talked about before, this is a throwback to music hall. I mean, Benny Hill is right from the British music hall tradition. And as the horse and I play the field nearby, your memory I can't erase. For while I walk at the rear of the horse, my dear, I seem to see your face. I'm gonna sow the seed of deep devotion, fertilizing with emotion. Water it with warm desire, and then I'll reap the harvest of love. <laughs> Interestingly, though, harvest of love has a bit of a rock background and he's backed by a vocal group on this called the kestrels martin you may know about this but we americans we don't know anything about this they were one of the busiest vocal groups in england during the late 50s and early 60s and they sang back up behind joe brown billy fury and many others the lyrics as i said classic not only benny hill but music hall, double entendre about a farmhand falling in love or lust with a young lady. I mean, come on, poetry like this. And as the horse and I plow the field nearby, your memory I can't erase. For while I walk at the rear of the horse, my dear, I seem to see your face. <laughs> oh, dear. It is. It's music hall. That's all it is. <laughs> I'm choking him. (laughs) I'm just going to say that that's a classic Benny Hill style double entendre. Sure is. And now for something completely different. Uh, At number 47, Another Saturday Night by Sam Cooke, easily one of the most classic songs of the era. Another Saturday Night that I ain't got nobody. I got some money because I just got paid. I had someone to talk to I'm in an awful way Dig this I got in town a month ago I seen a lot of girls assisting If I could meet them, I could get them But as yet I haven't met them That's why I'm in the shape I'm in What can you say? This is one of many soul uh, classics we're going to see in this episode 
And actually, this was written by Sam Cooke when he was touring in England, and he was staying at a hotel where no female guests were allowed. So that's why he was writing about it, you know, another Saturday night, and and he just got paid, and and so, but nobody to spend it on. So, I mean, that's, (laughs) it's exactly what he was writing about but master vocalist almost a standard now at number 49 some other guy by the big three is getting ready to fall off the charts and the big three are about to be not heard from again (laughs) the the least successful of brian epstein's stable the big nothing soon (laughs) (laughs) apologies to big three fans out there yeah 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 sorry for offending them as i pointed out to kit Elvis Costello prefers this one to the Beatles version. He thinks it should be done in a slower, more soulful presentation. We all disagree. Yeah, I love Elvis, but no, (laughs) I disagree with him on this one. Okay, moving on to the 23rd of May, 1963. For me to you, still holding on at number one, but we had a little flip here. At number three, Do You Want to Know a Secret by Billy J? And at number eight, How Do You Do It? Has fallen down just a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. At number 49, Foolish Little Girl from the Shirelles, which we talked about a couple months back. Not one of their best, but it's interesting. Yeah. Not one of their best, but classic girl group sound. And then at number 50, a song we kind of need to talk about a little bit. Forget Him by Bobby Rydell. Forget him if he doesn't love you. It's okay. I don't like it all that much. But Paul McCartney says that the lyrics were part of what influenced them to write She Loves You in that style, to pick up that third person style. This absolutely fascinates me that, yeah, that this inspired him, that apparently uh, in a 2000 interview, Paul said the initial idea for for She Loves You came from this, that he, you know, noticed this song at the time. It was written together, and I I don't know how. I remember uh, it was Paul's uh, idea to, well, instead of singing about I Love You, that we'd have a third party passing a message on to somebody else. I think this idea, it was was very, very much a pop idea of, she, you know, reported, uh, what, do you, what do you call it, reported conversation. Oh, little girl, he's never dreaming of you. He'll break your heart, you wait and see. I guess it just shows you how, you know, the Beatles paid very close attention to the charts, the trends, and is, that's fascinating. So, I mean, you take just one verse out of this and you can kind of see what Paul is saying. He'll break your heart. You'll wait and see. So don't you cry now. Just tell him goodbye now. Forget him and please come home to me. You know, you can see how they kind of took that and said, well, we can do better than that, but we like what he's trying to do. You know, you got one guy talking to another guy about his relationship. Yeah. Because up until then, I'm guessing that most love songs, well, most that I've heard were, I love you or you love me. There wasn't that, oh, this person loves that person or this person's doing that to this person. Right. You were just talking directly to the woman or the man or whatever. Yeah. 
And we won't bring it up here, but Bobby Rydell also has a story of he was to take the Beatles' place on the Helen Shapiro tour, and there's a story of them actually running into each other on the road while the two acts were out doing their separate theater tours. Hmm. Right. Interesting. So we move on to the last week in May of 1963. May the 30th, again at number one, is for me to use. So the whole month was for me to you. Jeez. Wow. Wow. Now all the way up at number two is Billy J. Kramer's Do You Want to Know a Secret? And down at number 13 is How Do You Do It? You know, we said that wasn't it amazing that for me to you would premiere so high. Premiering at number 22 is Jerry and the Pacemakers follow-up. I like it. Wow. Big start there. A second Mitch Murray song. Yes. I have to admit it. It's not one of my favorite Jerry the Pacemaker songs, but it is classic pop. It's catchy. It's just not one of my all-time favorites. I like how Cashbox described it as a happy-go-lucky jumper (laughs) uh, that Jerry solo vocals in ear-arresting style. And he does. His voice is so enthusiastic, definitely matches the sound of it. It's very bubblegum. It's how do you do it had the Beatles not reinterpreted it for Jerry. Yeah. You know, you can imagine this is very much the demo that Mitch Murray handed them. Yeah, exactly. That's a good way of putting it. As I said, not one of my favorites of theirs, but I can see why it was a hit. So moving on up to number 29 is the Bobby Rydell song, Forget Him. And at number 39, a new act that, well, we're going to hear more about. This is the act that I spoke of at the beginning. They were to be one of the bands to take the Beatles' place in the lunchtime sessions at the Cavern. The Hollies with a cover of the Coasters song, Just Like Me. And it's really cool to compare this version with the original by the coasters because obviously the coasters was a bit more you know a little bit more r&b i really like this uh you know it's a great kind of rock makeover of this uh which in the original was produced by once again lieber and stoller um mary had a little lamb his place was white as snow and everywhere that mary went the lamb was sure to go things i really like about the hollies is that no two songs the hollies did sound alike over the years you'll hear a song and find out you know that's the hollies like look through any window exactly none of their songs sound alike it's, it's just amazing and so here's another example of that i'm really a fan of theirs because they are so diverse and so it's really very exciting to you know here this is their grand debut although my comment here is if you haven't heard the song, it starts out with a couple verses of Mary Had a Little Lamb. Now, who would take that song and make a pop song out of it? Hey, you know, that's just not something anybody would ever do. Who would ever do that? So. <laughs> 
the early days of the Hollies, though, one of the things is that you had a really good partnership there with, in that time, Alan Clark and Graham Nash. They used mm. to really be good at getting these songs, whether they wrote them themselves in, in the, the way of those two or if there were cover versions, they had this ability, those two, to be able to shape the song to fit the group and to work it into their own style. Good point. Yep. And as Graham Nash reminds us, he first met George Harrison when George was about 17 and that they have stayed friends on and off. Although there's a famous story about the Hollies and George getting into a little tiff during the rubber soul era. Uh Oh, well, we won't go into it, but it's out there and we'll get to it as we move along in the years. Mm-hmm. You can look it up now. If you want some spoilers <laughs> at number 42, the one and only Neil Sedaka with Let's Go Steady Again. Baby, let's kiss and make up. Let's go steady again. Like in the past. This is kind of a Neil Sedaka formula song. You know, it's, yeah. it's breaking up is hard to do and happy birthday, sweet 16. Just the same thing all over again. It's not bad, but it is that. Yeah, funny you mentioned happy birthday, sweet 16, because that's what I put in my notes. Sounds a bit like happy birthday, sweet 16. But nowhere near that level. Yeah, doesn't reach that level. That is absolutely true. But Neil Zanaka, yep. I mean, that's that's yep. his sound. I'll never want to offend any of his fans. I think they'll come for us. Yeah. <laughs> All right. At number 50 is Dwayne Eddy with Lonely Boy, Lonely Guitar. It's Dwayne Eddy. It's got that twangy sound in it. It's just perfect if that's what you're looking for. Yeah, and I like that this is like more of a ballad. I like the female singers, you know, singing this about the lonely boy keep playing on your lonely guitar. And and then hearing that distinctive playing, he was so ahead of his time. What an artist he was. And I mean, you can absolutely hear, you know, how he influenced George Harrison and other guitarists. I don't know how much of Hank Marvin you know, Kit, of the work that he did as a solo instrumentalist guitarist. Oh, sure. But I can see why Hank said that he was a fan of Dwayne from the beginning, because with Hank's solo material later, you'd almost hear where he's inspired by or influenced by Dwayne. Mm Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I haven't explored Hank Marvin stuff as much as, as I should. And that, that's one of the other things I love about doing our show, because I've been introduced more to Dwayne Eddy, Hank Marvin, uh, all that. Because, I mean, you really hear about you know the stuff they were doing in the early 60s and so forth were really ahead of their time experimenting with uh, the guitar. So definitely Dwayne Eddy influenced a lot of guitarists. Yeah. Well, which brings us right to the American charts. Here is something to consider about the 1963 Billboard charts. For the entire year, there is not one single song that has an electric guitar solo in it. Wow. 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 So, I mean, you want to see how the Beatles change things? There you go. Yeah. I mean, we're definitely going to see it is still dominated by pop on the charts and by 
traditional kind of pop artists like Tony Bennett, Steve Lawrence, uh, many other artists like that. The old school pop has actually aged better than the bubblegum pop of the Absolutely. Era. I agree. So. Yeah, I'm not saying that, and, and I'm glad you said that, because I'm not saying that in a negative way. But we're going to see some other interesting entries on the charts, however. All right, so once again, we have gone over, despite the fact that we didn't think we would. This is <laughs> that we will be back very soon with part two, the American charts from May of There was a piece in the NME, a news piece, that said the Top Rank Records, remember when Top Rank had a record label? Yeah, they introduced an LP series next week that will be called Toppermos, and is coinciding with their current advertising slogan, Toppermost of the Poppermost. Yes, I thought, they got it from somewhere. They saw that, they must have seen that in either the NME or Record Mirror or Disc, Record and Show Mirror, as it was then. And they've taken it from there. They've obviously thought, how stupid that is. How stupid is, is one of those phrases that someone, an older person who doesn't understand teenagers, comes up with a slogan that they think is going to be the hip slogan of the month. Toppermost of the poppermost.